This week, an Oakland County jury convicted the mother of the Oxford High School shooter on involuntary manslaughter charges. On count one of involuntary manslaughter, as to Madison Baldwin, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. On count two of involuntary manslaughter in regards to Tate Muir, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. On count three, as to involuntary manslaughter regarding Hannah Hanna St. Juliana, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. And in count four of involuntary manslaughter against Justin Schilling, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. For some of us, Jennifer Crumbly's trial was another window into the horrific day that led to a fatal mass shooting more than two years ago. For legal experts, it represents a new frontier in parental culpability in mass shootings by minors. But for members of the Oxford community, including student survivors of the violence, this process is the culmination of years of pain and advocacy. Today on the pod, we'll hear from one survivor about how these trials are resonating with her community and what moving forward looks like to her. It's so personal, and we've been kind of drug along in this in this burden of uncertainty for a little over two years now. A bit later, a gun safety advocate talks about whether these trials may signal a shift in American attitudes about who's responsible for gun violence. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Aubrey Greenfield is a freshman at the University of Michigan and a graduate of Oxford High School. After surviving the November 2021 mass shooting, Aubrey has become an outspoken advocate for stricter gun laws. And she's been watching the trial. I've definitely been talking to my family a lot about it, Uh, specifically my mom. We call every day, and this has definitely been something that's been on both of our minds all week, just because it is setting precedent. And also, I was very anxious going into hearing the verdict and just watching the trial in general because it's so personal and so close to home. And me and my mom definitely had high hopes for the trial, hoping that justice would be served. I mean, true justice would be having those four lives back with us. But any ounce of justice we can receive uh, counts. Do you notice variation in how people choose to observe or not observe what's going on with the trial? I definitely do observe variation, uh, specifically with my friends here at U of M. From Oxford in my class, we had about 10 to 15 students come to the University of Michigan. Some people choose to ignore it because the memories are too painful and they just want to leave Oxford in the past and bring Ann Arbor on. Other people chime in every once in a while or when there's a big case, they'll pay attention to it. And then you have people like me who do activism and that's kind of their thing. So you have to make sure that you're staying on top of it, even when it gets painful and tough. You have to make sure you stay informed because this not only informs your activism, but it also informs you about how you can help your friends and your community. I just wondered what what kinds of things you were hearing from folks and how you're feeling about the fact that the jury said, yes, there is a liability here. I remember watching the verdict get read live because I had been following the case pretty intensely and I had just gotten done with uh, a lab and I was heading to another one, and I looked at the uh, the verdict, and I felt pure joy. I got chills from hearing it, because it was not the answer I was expecting. Not that I didn't want it to happen, but I think that I wasn't expecting much, just because I feel like when I put so much faith and hope into it, maybe I'm jinxing it in a way, but I, I read it, and I called my mom, and we talked about it, and 
it was an amazing feeling knowing that this is one step towards justice. And now we have another step in March. You mentioned the fact that that some of the people you know would prefer to leave Oxford in Oxford. Mm-hmm. And you've you've made a different choice about that. What's it like to, you know, keep carrying the memories that come up every single time some development happens with the trials of the whole family? I mean, you're like you said, you're going from one lab to another and yeah. taking a pause to dip back into the memories again. Does that have a cost for you? It definitely takes a toll on my mental well-being. I can get very in my own head about it and very stressed trying to balance it all and also kind of leave a piece of me at home and make sure that I'm staying informed because I feel like it's my responsibility as a school shooting survivor who's taken up this mantle of activism to constantly be informed and make sure I'm there for other people and that I keep taking steps, including staying on top of news, to prevent other people from going through the same thing me and my friends went through. So in the end, it makes it all worth it, knowing that I'm experiencing pain in the moment, but that's going to help catalyze future change and help catalyze preserving the lives of students and making sure that they're safe in school and that they can go into public places and not feel like they're going to get shot or feel like their safety is in jeopardy. And balance is difficult, and it's definitely been difficult for me, especially with being a freshman in college for the first time and trying to make new friends and fall in love and all those cliche little checkboxes, right? Um, Trying to make sure that I also stay on top of stuff going on at home an hour and 10, hour and a half away. It's difficult, but manageable. Always that feeling of living in both places. Yeah, definitely. You've talked to us before about the fact that you were worried about maybe going to school and becoming known as the school shooting survivor kid in, <laughs> yeah. in the dorm environment. Did that turn out to be the case? I was very much in my own head about these fears and being afraid of having this label slapped on me for a choice I've been making actively to be an activist. Um, I think at the time I thought, you know, if I get this label, it's my own fault because I've taken up the mantle of being an activist and being involved in these different platforms. But overall, it really hasn't been true. Uh, This has been a part of my life, being a school shooting survivor, but it hasn't been my life. It's a part of the narrative, but it's not the narrative. I'm so much more than being in a classroom when the school shooting was happening. It can define a part of my life, but it's not my life. Have you found that maybe other students have had, I mean, very few people have had a similar experience to Oxford, but just about everybody grows up doing active shooter drills these days. Mm-hmm. How do people how do people react to the, you know, the fact that you've been an activist and that this story is your story too? A lot of people on my floor, if we're talking on my dorm floor specifically, it's kind of funny because it makes me flustered, but um when I do an interview or anything like that, they want me to send it to them so they can see it and text back and say, well, that was like it's A, B, and C. And I don't know. <laughs> it's just kind of funny. They're very, nothing, nothing nerve wracking there. <laughs> nothing nerve wracking. I'm like, okay. Like my boyfriend will ask me to send him an interview or I'll send him it after I'm done. And then I go, oh, okay. <laughs> don't tell me what you thought of it. Just kind of watch it and absorb. <laughs> but um, very positive reactions in general, very supportive, very helpful. They told me that just because they didn't go through it doesn't mean that they don't want to be there for me. And even though they might not have that same understanding or community that a lot of school shooting survivors do with each other without even speaking a word, it's nice to know that I have people there for me. And even though they didn't go through that experience, they still want to help and be a part. And all you can do is talk and 
kind of collaborate and figure out a path forward together. Are there times, maybe a weekend, maybe a day, or maybe just a couple of hours when you can just turn it off? I've been intentionally carving out that time for myself. First semester, I definitely did it. And I realized over winter break when I was reflecting, I've taken up journaling. And uh, I look back at it and I realize I need to be intentional about my self-care. And I need to be intentional about the time I carve out for myself. So second semester, I've been working really hard to make sure that once I go back to my dorm after studying and everything, school's away. It's me time now. That can involve reading, making tea, going and talking to friends, going on a walk with music, just making sure that I'm intentionally with myself and that I can feel the things I'm feeling, think the things I'm thinking without having distraction. The legal proceedings will continue. Mm -hmm. The trial of the shooter's father, James Crumbly, is coming up in a couple of weeks. What do you think is next for you once that particular chapter is over? Can you foresee yourself remaining involved? Of course. With activism? Of Mm -hmm. course, 100%. I feel sad that this is the catalyst that got me into activism. I wish I'd gotten involved years before, but all I can do is be as active as I can now in gun violence prevention. And even with uh, the verdict that was just read in the trial, I felt myself get lighter in a way if that's physically possible. Like I said, I think I had been carrying this burden of uncertainty for a long time, um, just like many in the Oxford community had. And finally having room to breathe and know that things were going to be okay, and that justice is slowly but surely being served. It's very comforting. And once this trial's uh, upcoming is over, and no more legal proceedings, when the lawsuits end, every day is a new day, and you just keep trudging forward just like we've been since the 30th. It's kind of, in a way, I feel, letting the bad things win if you slow down and focus on them too much, or if you let them take you over. So it's just constantly you know, trekking that path and taking each day at a time and staying true to yourself. We have to take a quick break here. When we get back, a national perspective on what the trials of the Oxford shooter's parents can tell us about Americans' attitudes and policies around gun safety. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Charging parents when a juvenile commits a crime is a pretty rare event, which is why it made big waves this week when jurors found Jennifer Crumbly guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Whether the case sets a precedent in future mass shooting cases is yet to be seen. But someone who'll be watching the ripple effects closely is Nick Saplina. He's Senior Vice President for Law and Policy at Everytown for Gun Safety. It is a truly unique uh, verdict, but one that I think the country needs because parents have a very important role in not just protecting their own children, but the community at large. 
And I feel that this will never be enough justice for the families that lost uh, a child in this shooting, but it does send a very strong and important message uh, that gun owners need to take responsibility uh, when there's a child in the house to to not allow unsupervised access to that firearm. And in that uh, sense, this is a really important uh, verdict uh, for the community and the country. We spoke recently with someone who uh, is involved in criminal defense, and she had she had some thoughts on the, you know, the possibility of more cases like this in the system, Nick. But I was curious. You said in your statement that it's a step toward ensuring accountability, and I wondered if you meant in a more informal sense. Do you think that this case will have a tangible impact on gun owning parents who are comfortable with their teens owning and using firearms, but who might you know, think twice about how storage is handled, how they, you know, what their conversations are like about use and access when there's nobody else in the house, for example. Well, absolutely. This is a this is a behavior, uh, first and foremost. And like I said, a lot of gun owners have internalized uh, this behavior over the years of learning how to use a firearm, uh, securely storing it is a, a really important part of it. They teach it in the military, they teach it uh, in in uh, good training courses. But so behavior matters. And I hope that uh, the publicity around this verdict does send them a, a bit of a wake-up call that with uh, gun ownership comes responsibility and that they need to take these very simple steps, uh, not only to protect their children, but the rest of us. Um, and you know whether it's fear of prosecution or just recognizing that these small efforts can have a very big impact. Um, I'm hopeful that folks right now are across the country saying, you know what, we're going to lock the gun safe and we're going to keep the keys uh, away from our kids. James Crumbly, the father of the Oxford shooter and Jennifer Crumbly's husband, his trial is set to begin in March. What is your organization keeping an eye on with respect to arguments in that case? Yeah, I think it will be very interesting to see if that trial goes forward, because, you know, there was even testimony in the trial that he was the one who purchased the firearm, that he was sort of the person in the home who would be responsible for for locking it up. And so I think we'll have to see whether that trial goes forward. But, you know, I, I think, again, all eyes will be on the behavior of a parent who elected to bring a firearm into the home, but did not put any restrictions or, or uh, interrupt access. And I'll just say with a 15-year-old, let alone a 15-year-old who had uh, demonstrated mental health concerns. Um, so in that sense, we will have a, a bit of a replay, I think, of, of this trial if it goes forward. Michigan has passed some gun safety legislation within the past year that's going to take effect next week. As of the 13th, all Michigan gun owners who have children in the home have to securely lock away their firearms with a cable lock or a gun safe. Where does that put us in terms of national norms on gun storage? Well, uh, Michigan will join uh, good company in over 20 other states with uh, child access prevention laws. Um Many gun owners uh, already do this, and I don't think the law will change uh, their practice. But for folks uh, that don't, they now you know, have a clear instruction 
uh, from the government that this is not just uh, the law, but it, it it's a way to keep your family safe. And, you know, that's another thing that this case really did is just connect the dots a little bit um, to what can happen when you fail to do it. I think, you know, some individuals say, oh, it'll be fine. I'll keep the gun in my bedside drawer and nothing will happen because it's very you don't want to imagine the worst uh, happening. But I, a, a law makes it very clear when you go to purchase a gun, you're now going to you know, be informed of that law or take a, a training course on it. And I think that that matters. And Michigan is doing the right thing um, by by enacting this law. Uh, and over time, we'll see actual um, improvement in the areas that I mentioned earlier, which is great uh, for the state. I just want to note that we'll also have a new law that would allow family members or police, mental health professionals, roommates, and former dating partners to petition judges to remove firearms from those they believe would pose an imminent threat to themselves or others. That's a, a so-called red flag law. You mentioned earlier that that red flag laws and storage laws that that by your reckoning, they've made a tangible difference in accidents and suicides and intentional shootings. Can you give us a more specific example? What are states that have actually seen changes in these in uh, in these areas since they enacted safety laws? Sure. Well, let me start with secure storage, since that's what we're talking. I, it's important for folks to realize, with respect to school shootings, three in four guns used in a school shooting started in the home. There's the, the all the evidence you need as to why secure storage is so important, because the school shootings that we see all too often in this country and are always shocked by have a very simple uh, solution that could maybe prevent them from happening uh, altogether. In states that have these child access prevention laws, adolescents aged 14 to 17 saw an 8% decrease in, in total suicide rates and an 11% decrease in firearm suicide rates. Um, both Indiana and Connecticut have had versions of red flag laws on the books for the longest time. So we have the best data um, from those states and seen as high as a 12% reduction in gun suicide rates in those states. Um, while mass shootings happen all too frequently in this country, as a statistical matter, they're still quite infrequent. Uh, but what we have in states like California, uh, Washington State, uh, New York, we have numerous examples uh, where a red flag order was taken out on somebody who made a threat to shoot up their school or who uh, said that they were going to go to their workplace and hurt people. And so, you know, the hardest thing to measure is something that doesn't happen. Uh, but we have right there in these petitions uh, made in these states of an intervention. And it's a headline that we don't read that is the most important one and why these laws have so much promise to them. That's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Baer. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. Today's podcast was produced by April Van Buren. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabensag, and Mercedes Mejia. Our intern is Olivia Meradian. Our podcast editor is Rachel Ishikawa. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Audio Network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.